Hello, everybody, and welcome to part two of, my goodness, one of the best guests we've had on the show. Sorry to other guests. I don't mean to be unfair to other guests, but holy smokes. If you heard last week's episode, I'm, I'm sure uh, you were very entertained by it. I imagine you were. If you listen to this podcast, why the heck would you not like that episode? It, to me, was uh, kind of the ideal of what we're going for with this show. Some laughs along the way, some big ideas, and a lot to think about, new ways of looking at life. I have the most splendid news for you guys. First of all, some of you East Coasters have been wondering when you could see the documentary Psychonautics. It is uh, making the East Coast premiere during the Psychedelic Film and Music Festival in October, coming right up, October 4th and 6th. Uh, it's all, all the information is on uh, my website, shanemoss.com, so you can go there and find out more about that, and I have something I've been piecing together for some time, and I'm launching it now, and it's, uh, it's, it's the beginning of a big new tour, not just a tour, but something that I want to, uh, to be uh, a very regular thing in cities around America. I am launching my new show, Stand Up Science, on the show, which I'll host in a city hopefully near you soon. Right now, I have Minneapolis lined up for October. I believe Chicago as well. We're waiting on Madison and Milwaukee uh, as well to confirm, and uh, going to do the first trial run there and and make sure and figure out the kinks out and everything else necessary, and then expand from there. Uh, the show is going to have me hosting with some of my fun, more scientific material, and then a local professor in town giving like a kind of a little more casual uh, TED talk. A local comic next doing kind of uh, just higher brow, more more cerebral comedy. And then another professor, and I've been reaching out to past guests and getting authors and stuff like that involved. And then all of us at the end getting on stage together after after their talks and doing a Q&A with the audience and riffing and a bunch of my material in between sets. And you'll get to see more of my stand-up. And I'm hoping this will be uh, um, a semi-regular show, like a quarterly show in many cities across the U.S. So I could really use your help. I think the Minneapolis one is going to sell out without a doubt. It's October 17th, but I always record these intros close to a week before they come out. And so by the time you're listening to this, hopefully there's more information on ChainMoss.com to find out more about the other cities where I'll be launching it. And I would love to see you guys in involved in the ground floor of what I think is going to be really special, something that I've been working towards for a very long time, and I've been tinkering with the marketing and how to pitch it and everything else, and it's ready. It's ready to go. So check out shanemossmauss.com to find out more about that, and there will be more updates and more information coming in. Uh, it's... Uh, it's all clicking into place rather rapidly, and I look forward to seeing you all out there very soon. 
Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am back for part two on the book Objection. Discussed Morality and the Law. I'm here with Deborah Lieberman. Shout out to co-author Carlton Patrick, who couldn't join us, wasn't in town for this. By the way, if you didn't listen to part one of this episode, you're really going to want to go back and listen to that. That's going to be tremendously helpful. So please go back, listen to part one, because in part one we were talking a lot about how emotions are formed, what they're all about, how they evolved, but what are the different cognitive processes that that they are a part of and then kind of getting into some of toward the end what disgust is and and also why why we're drawn to things as well why we have a why we have an appetite for certain things we were talking about food right at the end of the episode and uh we're talking about like you mentioned maggots a couple times. I think that that was one when I was like, oh, that's why maggots are uh indicator of... It's something you take for granted. Again, all of these things. Right. People can picture a maggot being on their food in their heads right now. And they have this immediate reaction like, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, you would. Uh, that's a that's a one star Yelp review at at that restaurant. Uh, and um, and they're they're probably calling some services or whatever the health department yeah. <laughs> on them as well. And, and so we take it for granted. What is it about that? The picture of of a maggot? Well, why does it cause that feeling in us? What's it? What's it telling us? Well, the maggot in and of itself uh, isn't necessarily disgusting. It's probably pretty nutritious, in fact, to fry up and, and eat. But what a maggot is basically telling you is it's a timestamp for how long a piece of organic matter has been left to the elements. So the idea is maggots are uh, they come from flies. Flies lay eggs, and a few days after they lay these eggs, out crawl very cute and cuddly maggots. And so if you've ever seen maggots coming, so when I was in grad school, out of my trash one day, I was like, what is that smell? <laughs> the distress on your face right it now is, the is only time adorable. This has ever happened. I wish I could take a picture of you telling the story. I need to start implementing video on this podcast because it's like if I didn't, if there was a, a, a mute right now and I didn't hear any of the words or know what you're talking, I, I was like, did someone just die in yeah. her family? Oh, what is- it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. And so... Out of the garbage can, which was, you know, two and a half feet high, I see these maggots coming out of, oh my gosh, and they're on the floor. And I just, I almost vomited right there. I, I, I It was all I could do to not totally toss my cookies. Yeah. And so it, it was such a strong reaction. But the maggots themselves, like I said, these are little animals. You can fry them up and cook them and do whatever you want. Like, but why is it that they're, well, they're probably, that's not a good idea to do. Um, but why are they disgusting? And it's because they are cueing a timestamp as to how long organic matter has been left around. Um, and so I hadn't 
thrown my garbage out for a while. And so what's there and flies that might get in lay their eggs, it's telling you how long it's been around and therefore how safe it is to eat. So, um, so yeah, so maggots, very disgusting. Mm. And so there's, there's a a lot of uh, fun food studies out there too, where, where there's, what, what is it? Fudge? That had been shaped into have some into fe- what? <laughs> it's yeah, well downstairs. In the oh lab. man, in the, in the <laughs> I lab, it yeah, up here, yeah. yeah, in the lab. And <laughs> um, uh, your your lab is not like it doesn't look like NASA in your lab. I'm I'm guessing. It's sorry, just, there's like surveys and stuff yeah, happening in some there. Computers in a table. There's not like uh, beakers and things like that, like people normally picture. No jars uh, of you know eyeballs uh, or anything <laughs> like this. No. <laughs> headless eyeballs <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> exactly but uh, no fudge shaped feces shaped fudge feces shaped fudge <laughs> yes and and uh what do you do in a study you like offer a slice of it you tell people what it is and see what their reaction is to it what do you what do you do it why is there uh spencer's gift uh, <laughs> right. sitting in your lab right now. What are you doing with that? So I actually was doing a, a different study. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Mm-hmm. But um, pa- Paul Rosin and colleagues had done some great stuff where they were looking, asking people about, you know, if you told them and explained to them that these things were sterile, they're really clean, you know, would you still would you still eat it? Or would you still eat something that came into contact with it? So uh, Paul Rosin had some really fun studies where he would have a, a bedpan. Um, you know, would you would you drink mm-hmm. out of it? Um, even if it was sterile, and it's clean, look, I'm, 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 I'm tearing open the pa- packaging right now, would you drink out of it? People will not. If you have a little this is a this is a fun merch idea for me now. There you go. After after my shows, I have everyone sells beer koozies and stuff. No one no one sells little bedpans afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> you might have the market on that. Yeah, <laughs> you have to tell the audience. This to, was disgusting. This is an audio this show. Bo- you, you have to go. I'm slapping myself yes. in the Don't. forehead right now with how bad the host. Right idea is so so <laughs> listeners are really oh, yeah, yeah. get a full sense but, of what's happening but you can do also you can also sell the plastic cockroaches he used as, so he drip he dropped that into a glass of juice and say look it's completely sterilized it's clean it's just but they still are hesitant to to eat it no with our poo uh our plastic poo down in the lab what we had done is we had placed it um, we were very curious about whether people have a specific memory for where contaminants are in the environment. And so we had taken pictures of a toilet bowl. So, so the short, very short story is, and I'll go into the longer story if you'd like, is we were just interested in whether people identified contaminants in, mm-hmm. in the environment. And so we took that and we actually put it in a toilet bowl and took it out, put it in different places. Um, and, and so that would be the short story. The slightly longer story is that there's a technique in psychology when you're trying to determine whether people have attention for particular stimuli. It's, ca- it's called cha- when you have a picture and then a duplicate picture, and only one item has changed from that duplicate picture. So let's just say, since we're talking about it, if you had a bathroom scene and the toilet seat was open and it was just a regular, you know, sh- saw the shower with a shampoo, the toilet seat was open and a sink and so forth. And then I showed you the same exact picture, but this time it had my little, you know, plastic turd in the toilet. Mm-hmm. Well, if I 
very quickly flashed both of these pictures back and forth. The question is, how quick are you to determine what's different about these two pictures? This is the photo hunt game at a bar. Yes, exactly. And so, but in so we can actually time you to see how mm-hmm. fast you are in determining uh, whether you're blind to this change that I've made, being the the plastic turd in the toilet, or whether you can see it very quickly. And it ends up that our minds are biased to pick out. Uh, items that would have been evolutionarily important to identify very quickly. So uh, research by Josh New and Lita Cosmides and John Tooby has found that, you know, you can actually have these really complex scenes where there's a man in the distance that's really small. And if he, you're very quick to find out, you know, to determine whether uh, he's in the other picture. So you can say, I know there's a big difference in this picture. There's that small little man that's missing. By contrast, you can have buildings missing in one of the photos and people are very slow to determine mm-hmm. what's missing. And so it looks like we are biased to kind of to pick out or what they had found is we're biased to pick out other humans, predators, other animals. So um, like 99% of the actual visual information that you're looking at in a picture is not this little man. And uh, that he's he's making up a, a very small small portion pixel-wise very yeah. visual information yet your yeah. your your cognition is biased to pay specific attention to elements of the of of the pixels that would uh, have uh, a more relevance or importance for a certain social setting survival or, survival or, things like or this. environment. And so we were curious whether the same thing happened with contaminants. And so that's why we have the plastic poo in the lab. Yeah, because this isn't, it, this is uh, a, a big part of um, why it's important to understand uh, evolution. I mean, there's there's an endless number of important reasons, but it's uh, it's also one of, one of the big things is to recognize that a lot of our modern environment is also not the environment that we were uh, built in and what we are necessarily built for. And sometimes we do need to uh, reassess, not necessarily like uh, because uh, uh, chocolate poo is necessarily some wonderful new opportunity that you're that you're missing out on in a, in a given environment but it's still handy to know that the the reason why even even knowing that it's chocolate intellectually knowing that it's chocolate is is just it's still going to be very very difficult for you to process with your evolved uh psychological mechanisms because you had uh, for all of human history if you saw something that came any close to resembling a piece of, you weren't uh, taking a closer look you weren't like well maybe if i just touch yeah. it with the tip of my tongue just poo to double check yes. yeah you don't step on that thing you don't look at it. that thing yeah. could wipe out a town <laughs> like you stay the heck away from that yeah. thing and 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 so this this is uh so when when teasing apart much of our modern environment, it's, it's good to know that a lot of our... Because there's also, on the other side of it, I think it might be helpful for some people to... There's there's things like obsessive compulsion That's right. disorder, where people are cleaning and cleaning and cleaning. And maybe if in the future people become mindful of the fact of like why they are driven to do that and how that is... Uh, unnecessary. Uh, they're doing kind of an unnecessary amount of cleanup because they're kind of driven to do that from an environment that existed in the past that no longer 
does. Yeah, maybe. I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a good question, the techniques in reducing some of the anxiety associated with, with OCD. I, I, I tend to view OCD as being slightly modular in the mm. sense that there seems to be a component of it that is washing related mm. um, and does seem to be very germ oriented and is likely very much tied to the sensitivities and settings of a disgust system. Whether it's how it how the system feeds back to turn things off or how sensitive it is to the cues um, and updating information as to what is valid as a cleansing technique and so forth. Mm. But the question is how these things develop and how early development, early environments shape our intuitions about the safety and cleanliness of our environment. I've heard it. I've heard it, though this would come under the title of speculation, um, the idea that we you know, ancestrally, where were we living? We were living out, you know, in huts and dwellings. We were around dirt. We were, uh, you know, we were we were getting dirty. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we were cleaning up, but getting dirty. And we were, you know, one way of thinking about it is we were sampling the microbes of the environment and our body was able to uh, determine, you know, what was out there. But I think... I've heard it discussed that our bodies are are geared to thinking there's microbes out there. Yeah. If there's one thing I know, no in scare quotes, if there's one thing I know, your immune system is saying there are microbes out there and I need to detect them to determine what kind they are and how best to, to beat them. And if the immune system isn't getting that feedback and that information, mm-hmm. it could be that it's self-regulating and saying, I must not be sensitive enough. Mm-hmm. I must need to up my sensitivities to, to things. And so it's, it's very possible that, yes, it's very nice to have bleach and all these cleaning products and keep our kids, you know, not on the grass or on the dirt and keep them on the very clean, sterile tile. Uh, but the question is, is whether or not that's doing anything good for their immune system and sensitivities in terms of how we think about uh, or, or how the disgust system and... and and contamination avoidance system develop. Yeah, your your, your uh, immune system and and uh, a, a lot of these cognitive uh, decision making t- toolkits for for an environment for millions of years there was X number of microbes out in the environment in an average day week lifetime whatever it might be and now all of a sudden you're in an environment where there's say one-tenth x microbes because lysol and uh, modern sanitation and whatever there might be or formula so you know if you're being breastfed you're you know from a very early age you're starting to sample the microbes that are out there from your mother. And so if you're not breastfed, I mean, people obviously need to make decisions that are best for them. But if we understood what's actually going on and, and the things that are getting transferred through the early early days of breastfeeding, um, and then even later on, the question is, is whether kids who end up being bottle fed suffer mm-hmm. uh, by virtue of the fact that their immune system hasn't calibrated in the way that it would have had they been breastfed. Mm. Possibly more allergies, which is a which is a a false resp- or a, a an immunal response to what, something that is being misperceived as a threat, but is not actually a threat because yeah. this it's been ramped up been, to be sensitive. Yeah, 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 to increase sensitivities. Yeah, right. 
I mean, it is. Uh, gosh, these these uh, these feelings are so powerful. If I like, I'm I'm a pretty big adrenaline junkie. I have uh, I have uh, lived a a very um, <laughs> probably anxiety producing life for almost most everybody else i mean i have been you're a comedian uh, you're you're a a stand-up comic i'm a thrill seeker (laughs) i'm a a stand-up comedian i i mean i used to like hold on to cars on rollerblades going 70 miles an hour and go down things that as mothers like yourself just shaking their heads uh and i mean i've i've been in fights i've been to jail i've read i've lived a rich and full life and i'll tell you nothing in this world scares me more than a porta potty you just any any old (laughs) any old porta potty if i walk out this building and i look out by the football field there's a porta potty nothing scares me more than that i would rather fight three men at the same time than go into that porta i'd risk you know I'd risk jail just to pee on the side. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. it's you're, it's really funny. It's yeah, when push comes to shove, I'm still not using it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then the and then the other interesting thing that your book brings up is is how this kind of uh, um, how these discussed uh, mechanisms can be regulated in different environments all of a sudden like uh, uh, a sexual environment where I uh, being somewhat of a a germaphobe scared of porta potties uh, not the biggest fan of public bathrooms and uh, even even though public bathrooms probably not that much of a threat compared to what I'm perceiving them to be yet uh, I'll uh, and in the heightened sexual arousal, I'll I'll put my mouth on some pretty dicey <laughs> areas pause right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can listen. You know I don't. Need, I don't need to hear <laughs> I, 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 what you put your mouth on. <laughs> I, I well, I think all of us. I think every one of us in in, in, in uh, given. <laughs> sexual experience even saliva even just kissing someone even if if i was to uh, saliva i'm sitting here just swallowing saliva as as we talk see now you just and and that just triggered a response from some people just got grossed out hearing hearing that response if i were to share a drink like maybe Maybe I could you could have a sip of my water, but I'd have feelings about it. I, I would, you know, I would. I have feelings. I, like I would, you can have some of my water yeah. if you need it. But, but I'd have I, yeah, I would definitely have feelings about it, and and I'm sure it would be perfectly fine. But but there's still, or even take my own. If if I were to tilt my head back right now, spit straight <laughs> up in the air, and then catch my own spit that's a good that mate right there already Woo-hoo, in my mouth talent. yeah that that's uh, that would that would be disgusting i yeah. think most i think most people if i was out in public and someone saw me spit my <laughs> and then and then swallow back my own saliva i think most people would find that revolting but it's my own saliva that i'm swallowing right now it's the only difference is it's just not leaving my mouth yes for for, for a split second and and so there's all of these uh, these 
very specific different uh, changes that can happen in, in an environment. And so how do, how does I mean how the heck do we have sex? How how are we not just riddled with panic <laughs> about about potential uh, uh, parasites in in this environment? You're swapping fluids and everything else. How? 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 Yes, <laughs> I'm glad you're asking me the question. How do we have sex? Yeah. Um, and so the question is: is how? This how- is way better than I I used to call up uh, yes. professors and be like, yes, excuse me, question number one, how do you have sex? <laughs> that, that was, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get a lot of uh, uh, um, traction with people when I, when I opened with that question. You have to wait till episode number two, okay. I find, yes. with a person. Then you can ask someone, how do you have sex? Today's rest from attention fatigue is brought to you by the Quip Electric Toothbrush. Go to getquip.com to find out all about the Quip Electric Toothbrush. It has changed my life. You know why? I don't need to think about it anymore. You go to the store, they're going to try to sell you a million different toothpastes. Most of, oh, whitening, I want whiter teeth. And then it has abrasives in it that can be harmful to your teeth and chemicals that don't work. You want to go to your dentist every six months is what you want to do. And you want to keep your mouth healthy using a Quip electric toothbrush, which monitors the amount of time that you're using it. It gives you feedback so you know when those two minutes that you're supposed to brush are up and you're brushing for that length of time and not longer. It's gentle on your gums. Some electric toothbrushes are too aggressive, too abrasive, and it also delivers refills to your door. That's the number one thing. No more thinking about it. I'm not marking my calendar. I'm not worrying about adding it to the grocery list and squeezing every last little bit of toothpaste out like a toothpaste junkie because I can't, I need one more hit of toothpaste because I keep on forgetting to get it at the store and, and not knowing the right brush to get and when and all that is over. It's delivered to your door every three months without you having to think about it any more. No more toothbrush decisions for the rest of your life. A little tongue scrubber, that's a new habit you can build. And I've been flossing more. They don't even have, haven't even mentioned flossing. This isn't part of the sales pitch, but I started flossing more because I'm like, well, I'm already taking better care of my teeth. Let's go all the way with it and build more of those good habits. This is the snowball effect of positive habits that can start happening in your life, starting with something as small as getting yourself a proper toothbrush, a Quip electric toothbrush. And, uh, you know, you can do all the research yourself. This is why it's been backed by 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25 if you go to get Quip.com slash here we are. Right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. Get your first refill pack at getquip.com slash here we are. <laughs> what I'm asking, let me rephrase the question as you're, you're as you're pretending you're to be asking. offended by what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> so, so how, how are we overriding our disgust no, it's, systems? It's to... a great question. So disgust is, Thank you. you're so welcome. <laughs> disgust, if it's the function of disgust is to steer us clear of 
sources of disease, the question, as you put it, is how do we have sex? I mean, sex brings you into very close contact with other people's bodily fluids that harbor pathogens, viruses, I mean, things that could really uh, make you sick. So the question is, is how does that ever happen? And so in order for, so if you think about the disgust system, so we were talking about how disgust is ramped up when you have cues to pathogen presence. So it would suggest that somewhere in that system, there's uh, another set of inputs that would cause you, that would ratchet that back. And so what is that input? And it ends up, it's probably sexual value. So when you determine that someone is of high sexual value, so that would be the scientific way of saying it. Let me just, mm-hmm. in lab- you're attracted to someone, they're hot, you, you want to have sex with them. Sure. Um, and so when you, as, you know, when, when you feel that way, it ends up ramping down disgust. And normally it ramps down disgust, you know, just to the right amounts in order to have sex. And what's interesting are the individual, I figure you were going to go here at some point in time, the individual differences in terms of just how far disgust mm-hmm. can ramp down uh, in in the sexual domain. So yeah, you start to... I'm, I'm not, just so you know, yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not super... It, like, I hear about other people's yeah, uh, yeah. behavior and I'm like... But this is where it comes from. That's not, yeah... Well, the thing is, is that typically when you hear about other people's behavior that you react to like that, you're typically not sexually aroused. Right. right? right, So you don't quite know how you'd handle it if it were you and if Mm -hmm. it were, you know, so maybe you'd still find it objectionable and disgusting, but perhaps not as intensely so given Mm -hmm. that you're not in the same kind of state that led to that not being so disgusting. I should be more open-minded. You're yeah. right. Well, maybe. What? Anyway. <laughs> I just yes. like to throw you here. Different there. strokes for different folks, <laughs> yeah, man. Exactly. So, uh, so in any case, it's. Uh, but it, so it looks as if sexual value, mate value, is one of the factors that that is also taken as input into this disgust system. And mm. so when you determine that someone is very uh, sexually valuable, then that ratchets down disgust. Hmm. So so if there is like, say, information out there, or if, if, there, if there's like a, a P-tape out there that, that exists, uh, that you hear, hear, hear whispers about in the in the news sometimes. You don't know what I'm referring to. No, what did uh, I miss? Um, <laughs> oh, some people think that uh, one one of the fun conspiracy theories out there is that the Russians have uh, blackmail evidence on on Trump that involves some like kind of rather gross uh, sexual things from his visits uh over over there which if if that if that's if that, all like that's it that's what it takes to blackmail if, a president if that's, if that's all yeah. like come on if so no. you got paid on who cares i, I i'm he not really buying it, it. Yeah, yeah own it exactly but well that's what i'm saying is like isn't wouldn't that just mean that he's like getting higher value mates if he's if there is if he has this lower threshold <laughs> yeah, exactly. for disgust i mean if anything it's a compliment um, no, but actually, yeah, that's probably not the case. I mean, I've, I've not that I know anything about it, but isn't he like a germaphobe? Sure I mean, isn't his disgust even more heightened? I imagine I it is. He uses so. a lot of disgust terms and whatnot in his. No, well, in his red, absolutely no disgust yeah. is uh, one uh, of his main tools. Yeah, we should. We should. I don't know the best way to transition into getting there from where we are now, but we'll make sure and get to that point as well at some point okay um no just to finish up what you were talking about yeah. so light so 
I don't know whether there's one button in the brain that is the disgust button in the sense of, you know, when it has a low value, it produces disgust and in a high value, it produces more appetitive or attractive kinds of sen- sensations. It's very possible there's multiple systems. So one that's for this food psychology that's assessing the consumption quality of something. And then there's probably something else that's assessing the sexual quality of something else. And the reason why I say this is because they're two very different problems, what to eat and who to have mm-hmm. sex with. But not only that, there are other factors that bear on who to have sex with that don't seem to get input into the what to eat column. Although I want to point out that might not be so, but let me show you what I'm talking about. Mm So kinship, as we mentioned before, is one of those things that should regulate whether you're attracted to someone. And so kinship is... So you can have a very hot sister. So what you were talking about before is, you know, your next door neighbor. But let's just say you have a really beautiful sister. She has a very high mate value, right? So you can tell that she's beautiful. And, you know, as other guys might like to bug you, they know that she's beautiful. Um, And so your dad knows she's beautiful. Um, The thing is, is that what's different is, even though she might have high mate value, because to you, she is a close relative, she has high relatedness, when those combine, it produces very low sexual value. You know that other people aren't related to her, so to other people, she'd have high sexual value. But because kinship is regulating and influencing how sexually attractive you attracted you are to someone else, and kinship doesn't seem to be getting into the what-to-consume system, mm-hmm. it that's evidence in my brain that they're that these are probably two separate disgust things mm-hmm. however it could they could be one and they could obviously overlap quite a bit so i have some very strange research questions and i'll, I'll yeah. share with you one of them well I, just to clarify oh, okay. kind of a little bit of what you're talking so so i so i have a sister i have a young sister and i have to um there has to be some sort of half my genes are are inside of her on average and there, and there would on average and there would be there would be mechanisms in me to uh if i can understand her maybe there's nothing like weird about being like oh shit my my sister's beautiful or symmetrical or whatever yeah. because i i need to know that when she's pairing off with some guy i need to be like hey are you are, are these genes of mine selling themselves short exactly. right now? Yeah. And, and is this is or is she getting a bargain? Is she is right. she have a high uh, mate that's of a higher value than she is? All right, you should go with this guy. And this is all all this 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 is probably a big part of a lot of those uh, you know meeting the family and all of the stuff that we all have to go through and family trying to pair you with people and what is it dowries or whatever. yeah so fathers know how attractive their daughters are and how many mm-hmm. goats or sheep she should cost or something you know like mm-hmm. or how much he should be getting in return um but exactly this so you can have these thoughts about your sister and know exactly you know her levels of attractiveness so physical attractiveness but sexual attractiveness is a completely different story mm-hmm. so even you know a high sense of relatedness turns an otherwise, you know, attractive mate into someone you'd never have sex with or, you, you know, you wouldn't want to. But, but the stress response system might be setting off the same cascade of hormones, whether you're about to be in like a physical confrontation or if you're under financial stress. Um, Say more. Uh, Tell me what you're talking about. Potentially. So in or, terms of if you were to 
find your what uh, well, no i'm just talking about like uh one one system being used for multiple things oh so, oh yes yes so so like in in that the difference between ken and sexual seems to be separated but then there is like the stress response system that seems to be a little bit more of a button situation That's deployed in a lot of different it, it, situations yeah. so it's it's really an open question as to whether or not there are two discussed systems, one that's there to handle coming into contact and making decisions about what to consume, mm-hmm. um, and then a separate one for who to have sex with. And there might even be another one, or the question is, is whether this is all the same system and whether it operates in one domain or another just depends on the inputs that are that are present. But the research question I had that would seem to maybe get at this would be, well, I actually it wouldn't. Okay, I'll tell you what I was thinking, even <laughs> sure. though now I'm, that I've just thought about it, it doesn't make sense. Um, oh, you know what I like to do? I like to second guess myself constantly. <laughs> so, cannibals? So, I was just sure, curious cannibals. about. Listen, fetishes, cannibals. Uh-huh. Um, so, my question was who they prefer to eat. Would they, is kinship? <laughs> That's such an interesting question. It's really question. a messed up question, right? That, and so. I would say interesting. I would say, I mean, most people would say messed up. I think that's an interesting question to okay. ask people. Yeah. But is there any type of deciding point as to, like, are kin off the table, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Or are they, you know, is that possible that they are? So I just, so questions about how that circuitry differs in people who view humans as sources of you know of energy versus people who don't so there's something interesting about those brains that is somehow not tagging other humans as not consumable right so or or i should say there's something different about the sensitivity or or the context that allows them to assign humans as being consumable because humans in dire circumstances we know will engage in cannibalism Mm -hmm. but it usually takes very dire consequences or you know norms and religious you know kinds of things where there's a lot of social condemnation if you don't and to be a member of a group and so forth but typically we don't eat other humans and this is not why not i mean it's just a great amount of energy it seems like well here's an interesting thing so i you know that new series blue earth blue planet oh yeah so i mean those uh, those great documentaries and so they were talking about the Arctic wolves and they were talking about how desperate their situation was and they couldn't find food and this one's going to die and oh my goodness and these two are out patrolling and they see another individual who's not part of their their troop and so they go and they kill it. And so what they're showing from the aerial footage is that they've now attacked this individual and that, that individual is now lying there on the ground. And then you see the two uh, you know, patrollers just trot away. The question is, is, you were just saying how desperate and dire the circumstances are. Why aren't they going to eat this one? Like, there's a lot of meat there. Mm. And so it's just very interesting. It doesn't seem as if humans are the only ones that have a sense of, you know, we don't eat other. We're somehow tagged as not desirable consumables. And so is it a moral condemnation thing? So is it that cannibals are more like psychopaths? And, you know, is it a matter of what they're interested in? They're just not concerned about being. Maybe they're just thrifty. <laughs> I, I mean, it is every funeral. It's just like, oh, it's like, what a waste. It's like no one, no one sets up a big, delicious spread of barbecue and then just 
<laughs> shifts it shifts it away. I like, let's let's move on. <laughs> I, I'm just, thriftiness. thriftiness. That's, that's gonna fester. <laughs> no, keep going. Keep going with it. No, I'm done. You're done. <laughs> yeah, I know oh. that. But it, okay. I'm all, the only reason I raised the question, maybe I'm sorry I did, but it's just the idea that is when we talk I'm about not, I'm not pro cannibalism. <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying to make the same points you are, just in a more ridiculous fashion. That's all. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Um, so it's just it's just tries to get at when you because in the book, yeah, some of the technical components come in where we try and sketch out. Again, if we were tasked with building a system and handing the schematics to, you know, artificial intelligence engineers at MIT to go build a robot, what would we tell them are the types of information processing, the cues, how they get integrated and the weights assigned to to the different inputs given different contexts? How would we engineer consumption psychology and would it be completely different from the mate choice psychology Mm -hmm. with respect to disgust? because disgust plays a role in both of them. And so right now what we did is we've just mapped out as if they were two very separate systems, but it led to the question of, wait, are they two separate systems? Could they just be, you know, are there different moderators? So, you know, the hunger system, I don't know. Anyway, so it's just a a good thought that, and this is a nice example, I think, if I can say so myself, of what evolutionary psychology is in terms of thinking about a problem that our hunter-gatherer ancestors would have faced over a long period of time. And this one was what's what's considered good food or what's nutritious to eat? And also what's considered a good mate and how do I secure a good mate? And then mapping out, well, what types of software programs would have been good in solving each of those problems? And so, yes, you can look at the behaviors and preferences in you know, modern day humans, but coming to the problem in terms of, well, what would the actual information processing system look like Mm -hmm. like what information bears on this problem and how is it that this program no i want to start it a different way so the Mm -hmm. idea that any type of program you posit needs to be flexible enough and uh allow and explain for the the range of behaviors we observe and so the flexibility has to be built in so humans vary all over the place some people eat certain things here and over there mate choice differs and so any serious attempt to explain food psychology or mating psychology needs to be able to explain the wide variation we observe. Mm -hmm. And that was one of our goals was to say, this is how we'd start on these problems. And then this all ties into uh, morality somehow too, which is, is, so this is, and we've talked about embodied uh, cognition a bit on the, on the podcast before. It doesn't necessarily mean someone listening right now to this episode heard those episodes and knows what I'm talking about with embodied cognition. Um, but we we make a lot of metaphors in light, like we're sitting here having a conversation and, uh, you know, we start out, you warmed up to me and then I made a cannibal joke and then you got very cold and it hurt. Well, I tried to, and, but these things don't actually mean anything, but we're using these like physical words to yeah. describe um, these, these feelings that we're having of like, 
being uncomfortable because I crossed the line or, you know, whatever it might yeah. be. But you didn't cross the line, just so you know. Okay. I know yeah. that. It takes uh, a lot more. <laughs> I, I, I know. I'm talking with someone who just Thick studies skin. this. Skin. Yeah. Right, right, right. No, I, I just, I was, I was stretching for a joke that I could make along the way to also explain embodied cognition at the same time. But we talk about morality, ego. So we've been talking about food and, um, and things like incest and things like cannibalism. I'll have this same sort of trigger. But then you have something like someone steals from you or you watch the news. You see a politician deliver a message uh, that about one of their economic policies. And, and you go, oh, that person disgusts me. And they make you feel physically ill. What is, what's going on there? So some of the most potent elicitors of disgust tend to be these moral uh, these moral behaviors or immoral behaviors. And so you can ask people what kinds of things disgust you. And in addition to all the disease stuff and some, you know, non-normative sex stuff, um, you might find also that they're saying stealing and, and all of the different types of things you just talked about. So the question is, what is going on here? Is there a separate domain of disgust? Did disgust, disgust evolve to function to deal with social behavior? And as a researcher, when I started out, I thought the answer was yes. And I really did think that, by which I mean, I thought there was separate circuitry in the brain that evolved just like what to eat, who to have sex with, but then, you know, who to, you know, condemn. That maybe all of these were the, came under the heading of disgusts functions. And I now think that that's not correct. So I've, so I've published on that model of kind of, you know, pathogen sex and morality and i actually don't think it's correct anymore um i think that there's that morality is not a proper domain of disgust uh in 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 the way that some people write about and i'll I'll, but but it's very much related to it so the question is if i don't think it's a proper domain what do i what do i think is the relationship between morality and disgust and why do we find that disgust is used everywhere in the moral domain Mm -hmm. and i think that disgust is used uh in very strategic various strategic manipulative ways um and but it's one of the tools that is being used by a moral system which i have to say i don't even like that system it's it's a i'd rather call the morality system the the exploitation system but Mm. i I know that people are not going to be very happy about that. oh i'm very happy about that i i really like um i like i spent a lot of time thinking about um kind of self-deception that sort of thing and how it, i i'm uh i'm probably getting robert trivers on uh the podcast later this year it's awesome uh, if, if uh if it works out as long as he's still in jamaica the same time i am it's gonna it's going to so uh, uh but yeah i i love i and and he has a book the folly of fools that's that's a lot about um some of these evolved ways in which we manipulate others without even knowing that we're doing it ourselves well to be the most provocative i would argue that that's exactly what we're doing when we say something's moral or immoral Hmm. um and so i now get very nervous when i hear moral language um you know that's right and that's wrong and so uh if you'd like to hear the story like in short uh it looks as if so how does disgust influence morality if you, if each individual is able to assess a piece of food, a mate, you know, as, as holding a particular type of value for themselves, 
then there are certain things that are just going to have higher value in terms of what to consume and higher values of who to have sex with uh, that just naturally occur to you by virtue of the things that you tend to find sexually attractive. And for the food psychology, the things that you've been exposed to and have had experience with, you know, from childhood and, and so forth. And so the idea that you just you know what you like. And so these types of valuation of foods, the people who eat different types of foods and other people, it ends up that that ends up getting into how we calculate the social value of other people. So for instance, if I'm a single if I'm a single woman and I <laughs> I think Beyonce's in town right now. I think she is, yeah. Know, so there we go. <laughs> associative <Yeah. laughs> associative uh, cognition. So I have a certain social value for people. So I want to be around potential mates. And so I have, you know, I place a high social value on males who are potential mates and males who have a particular type that I might be attracted to or want to be be attracted to me. Um, just same, similarly for men who ha- can assign the social value to various women. So you're going to assign a higher social value to, you know, fertile women, women who are really cute, young and attractive um, compared to really old women um, or really young uh, on average. And so the idea that you assign a social value to other people hopefully doesn't sound too surprising. Mm-hmm. And but it's a lot by virtue of the fact of your own preferences. So you also assign so. But I need to push pause on that sto- side of the story for a second because bloop, bloop. That's, that's my right. pause button sound. So if you buy into the argument that we value, we have a system that assesses the value of other people, and how do we assess? kinship right so obviously people who are closely related to us we have high social value for those people friends um, because they value us they care for our welfare they're there for us during times of need Uh, we value their welfare Um, group member well let's skip group members for a second Um, yeah so let's just stop there for a second so just kin Mm -hmm. and friends just to say these are the kinds of things that we uh, assign high value to and also potential mates okay so we have a system that assigns social value to people Sorry if this sounds slightly repetitive. It's just a longer story than. Oh I, than no, I we're think. getting into it. This is we're okay. we're going for it. We're we're getting into some uh, um, cognitively <laughs> demanding ideas. Well, it, here's the thing: if I had known at the outset, because I had re- been doing research on disgust, and I had been thinking about disgust, and I had a vague idea: oh yeah, morality is related to disgust. And then my co-author, Carlton Patrick, he's a lawyer, and he's been thinking about these ideas from a legal standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that disgust ended up in the law. And while we were kind of outlining these chapters, it became really clear after some of the disgust chapters have been drafted or outlined, like, oh, my God, we're going to have to explain morality. In order to go from disgust to the law, we have to, you know, go through the whole crazy world of morality Mm -hmm. and i think that if i had known exactly how much i had to do that i never i don't know i I think i would have been deterred from writing this book but i'm so glad i did because here's the story that we came up with and the next one we're writing on consciousness (laughs) 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 and so um okay so we have a social value for other people but push a pause on that okay and so a separate topic which is that males compete for resources. This is not going to sound uh, 
to, you know, like such a crazy idea, the idea that males compete with one another for access to resources. This is an evolutionary tried and true story. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, males of many species, they are trying to accrue resources in order to attract uh, fertile mates. Mm -hmm. And so this is very much like our society. I mean, there's funny cliches, you know, women are all gold diggers and, you know, they're looking for a man who can, you know, uh, to invest in them and their offspring. So females are very sensitive to the amount of resources a male has and his ability and willingness to share them with her. And so there's a lot of research on this in evolutionary science um, and just obvious if you just look out into the world. Um, And so the idea that males compete for resources for access to females is a really strong psychology. But it looks like males also can gang up and have a desire to protect those resources. And and here's where you get into some interesting non-human behavior. It's probably easier to start with the the non-human studies that chimps will patrol their their boundaries. Mm-hmm. And and so but it's not this, you know, let me protect my group in my homeland and and this and that. I mean, it's much more than that. It is they are out to kill, target and kill any other males from other areas and groups that they can possibly get their hands on to the extent that they assess they can get away with it and, and live, to, you know, live through the skirmish. Is it because those other groups um, are jealous of their freedom and their liberty? or Yes, the other chimps on the other side are absolutely sitting there <laughs> yeah. trying to figure all that yeah. out. And so, but part of male psychology, I'd argue, is this desire to... Um, protect resources and in some males this takes the form of patrolling and and really going out to target and exploit other males who might challenge you know possession of those resources uh and it's not just you know a defense it's an uh, offense um and so richard Rangham, rangham and michael wilson um have done a lot of research on this jane goodall did a lot of uh work on this just noting how chimps will engage in these patrolling behaviors but also do these incursions into enemy territory and seek out uh lone males one of the studies that i read about which was really fascinating was that i think it was michael wilson and colleagues who did a playback study where they would identify a group of males or identify a group of chimps and they would have a speaker set you know maybe 20 meters you know in the distance 50 meters in the distance and so they would play the voice of you know another pant grunt or a hoot from another chimp and the question is is did males come together and close the distance between themselves and that uh, that other male that they're hearing uh, from the speaker. And groups of three or f- three or more males always close the distance. Um, and they always ran toward uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, seek and destroy. It wasn't to make friends and to see what they're doing. It was to seek and destroy. And so part of our psychology is an idea of protecting resources. Okay, so now the question is, if you are protecting resources, how do you know who to target? So let's kind of modern day humans or just, you know, ancestral humans even. Who are you going to target? And so I think there's this motivation and thirst for identifying what are groups of males who could potentially be drawing on the resources that could be there for me and my kind. Um, and how would I go about marginalizing them or eliminating them? Mm-hmm. And, I, and that type of psychology, uh, I think there's good evidence that it exists. Okay, so now back depress pause and now back to social value so if you're a male and you're walking around now and you're assessing the social value of people in your environment the question is who do you you know who's a possible extra mouth to feed who might be worth 
eliminating, targeting, exploiting. You're not going to go after your kin, right? There's evolved systems there to motivate you to care for kin, not friends. Friends are really important and would, would have been very valuable in ancestral times. Um, and so the question is, is who are you going to target? You're going to target the people who you have low value for. And one way of determine and disgust is one of those systems that identifies low values, low consumption value and low sexual value. And so the idea is particular foods, if you find them disgusting, well, you know, that's something that perhaps would say, I don't need, you know, that in my world. There's actually some interesting um, questions that come from all of this. But the idea of, you know, other other people who are engaging in sex in ways that I don't like, that's low sexual value. If they weren't around, you know, those are people who are ripe for exploitation. Mm-hmm. So here's... And the so, difference. Huh? The different people. Yes. Yes. It's, and so this is the unfortunate side of human nature. And so it's, here's the problem. I think that psycho- evolutionary psychologists haven't been really talking about these things. Um, actually, I don't think a lot of social and behavioral scientists have been talking about these things. And one of the reasons could be it's good to look good mm-hmm. in general. I mean, what falls out of these ideas is it's really good. So I haven't really told the whole story, but it's good to look good and talking about exploitation, marginalization and, and propensities and preferences for doing so. This is just not something that's you know nice to talk about. So in any case, what you find disgusting might be an input or an in, one source of information for a separate system that is trying to assess who to get rid of. Now, if you're listening to this and say, I don't think about who to get rid of. I'm not thinking, who do I want to kill and exploit and marginalize? And I don't think it comes to light and to our consciousness like this. Mm-hmm. But when you say... T- that person's wrong or that disgusts me. That person's behavior disgusts me. Basically, what you're saying is, is that, you know, this person, should they be removed, you know, it wouldn't cost, you know, be any sweat off my brow if I didn't see that behavior or that didn't happen again. When you call something out as that's disgusting or that's wrong, what are you doing? You're saying, I don't value that behavior. Not only that, it's very possible that disgust is being used to take everyone else's temperature about it because to the extent that everyone feels that way the coordination of an entire group well suddenly now you know are are we in the majority does everybody feel this way is it possible that we could join efforts to target and exploit these other people and marginalize them and take their stuff prevent them from dipping into our pool of resources and so when you say that's disgusting you know part of your you know your your auditory system is waiting to hear, you know, does anyone else agree with me? Mm-hmm. And if they do, then perhaps it's, well, what should we do about it? Um, versus, you know, you can imagine if you were, if you went to, you know, an NRA rally and you were just like, you know, those bastards, they should all be killed. Everyone with a gun is awful. You know, mm-hmm. that's not the place to do that. You, I mean, the group of people that would descend upon you, you know, is really <laughs> bad. Guns. Right. And so, but you can very much determine what type of crowd you're in. Mm-hmm. If you were like, you know, those gun-toting bastards, let's get them. And if you heard crickets, you're in trouble, right? Versus, oh, yeah, come on, let's go get them or this or that, you know. Mm-hmm. It, you're able to determine by the language people use how... Uh, potentially how interested they would be in their their own social value for individuals. And so it very much could be that. But here's the other thing that's interesting about disgust and morality. So disgust tells you what you personally find disgusting and therefore the kinds of people and behaviors that might 
you know, not cost you very much should they be targeted for exploitation. Whether or not you have motivations to get them yourself is a whole other story. But disgust can be used to take other people's temperature. But let's just say once a norm is in place, right? So there's a rule against homosexuality. You can get strung up and killed and jailed. All your stuff can be taken. So that's a form of exploitation marginalization, right? So it's like your behavior is disgusting people and you're just being, you're being targeted. Well, what if you're gay? And so the idea of saying, you know, homosexual. And so one way to prevent being the target of exploitation is to use disgust and say, no, that's disgusting, you know? And so you often find that people, you know, he doth protest too much. People who come out railing against homosexuality, at least mm. when it was, you know, taboo. Now it's, it's, it's very much not. Um, and so, but the question is, why is it not? How, how is it that the tide has turned? Why is something that was so disgust provoking or seem to be and, and might, might still be in certain circles why is this now so blasé like yeah everyone's gay like whatever mm-hmm. you know and so social i mean the idea that the tendency to target other individuals and exploit them very much depends on you know your leverage hmm. so if you're in a large group you're a person of power you can go after whoever you want And so I think that when you start to see a small, a minority group, as I was saying, the chimps, when they were patrolling, they knew their numbers. They knew whether it was safe to go in and and grab this lone male. But if they detected pant hoots from multiple males, well, hang on, that's changed the calculus of whether or not it would pay to to go in and strike Um, because they might lose, they might die themselves. And so I would say that in male psychology, in human psychology, you find that, you know, they're very sensitive to being outnumbered and mm-hmm. and whether or not it would pay to engage in a conflict. It depends on my leverage, right? So do I have a lot of people? So it could be just a numbers thing. So if you're in the majority, you're safe. If you're in the minority, you're, you're less safe. Um, and so identifying where those majorities are. And social media, for all of its downsides, you know, has really been uh, – I think, quite helpful in this manner because it has, and just media in general, it has changed the optics and the leverage status of of homosexuals and just, you know, people who are not straight up, you know, heterosexuals. Mm. And so the idea that it looks like they're a much larger group now, it's like everyone's gay. You know, if you were to ask people to estimate how many people are gay, you know, you might come up with numbers that are slightly inflated. Mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, their numbers just seem greater. Well, what is that doing? That's changing the cost of targeting a group that now seems more numerous. And so you can see that places where they do appear more numerous, the the laws against homosexuality have switched almost overnight. Um, and so I, mm-hmm. I, I would assume that, you know, if, if it's not this way completely, but you'll find that it'll flip the more people see that numbers and minorities are now looking like larger and larger minorities soon to be equal to majorities. Um, But I mean, not to, so one of the things that, so just to sum up there, uh, that was a lot. I apologize. Don't apologize. It's wonderful. So I, I'm. And this is the quietest I've been in the entire podcast because I'm like, oh my gosh, this is giving me a lot to think about. That's great. So it's 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 troubling because if it's true that what disgusts you is one way you you assess social value, um, then disgust might be used as a linguistic device to mark the kinds of people and kinds of acts that you would be okay with other people going after. 
Mm-hmm. So when you hear people say that's disgusting, so I mean Trump uses disgust all the mm-hmm. time, and he's just trying to rally the troops, right? He's basically saying these this is to be eliminated. Everything's disgusting except things that he loves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for the time that he loves them, and so it's very it's it's is very. Even like troubling. draining a swamp, a swamp seems like a dirty kind of environment yeah. filled with parasites and stuff. Which is really unfair in terms of, you know, people who are, you know, in public service. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of them mean to do good mm-hmm. or have, the, you know, have very good intentions. But here's where it gets concerning. So if you t- were to look at some research, so the Pew Research Group, I think, does research on the face of America and how people are going to change in terms of their religious affiliations and their ethnic and racial identifications. All that's changing, mm-hmm. you know, really rapidly. You're in Miami. Miami's an incredibly diverse area. The idea that there's any one majority, it, it almost doesn't really seem like any one group is a majority down here. I mean, there's all the different types. And so the question is, is when former minorities start to become majorities, which will happen, mm-hmm. uh, it's just a matter of time. I mean, the question is, is, you know, what then happens? The people who are were in power, were the majorities with greater leverage, uh, now are going to be under the thumb of minority groups that now have the majority and are the leverage. And so shouldn't this potentially cause us to change our behavior now? This is why I'm constantly pandering to women. Always, I want it to be recorded. I, I, want, <laughs> I want proof recorded that for years I've been talking about how great women are so that when you're all in charge, which is happening soon enough, um, not soon enough, but it's happening. Uh, you remember, it's like, hey, I was one of those guys that was rooting for you. <laughs> That's, I, I did the calculations yeah. years ago. <laughs> but I, you just you just brought up a whole other interesting topic, though, uh, mm-hmm. about what's going on with this interesting time in which we live of, you know, the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And this very much, I think, touches upon parts of this research Mm -hmm. or this area, which is different sensitivities to different types of behaviors. So I will pose it as an if question, like if it's the case that women tend to find sexual behaviors and a variety of different sexual acts more disgusting than, than men do, and if women are more hesitant to engage in any particular type of sexual act and are, are slower to get sexually aroused than, than men are. If that's the case. Not with my girlfriend. <laughs> but the idea yeah. that, you know... Cord- but I'm sure there's women out there where that is the case. Sure. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but if it's the case that there are sex differences, uh-huh. another bad word, there are sex differences in terms of the sensitivities to sexual acts uh, and the disgust that, that they might elicit, then if disgust is one of those inputs into the moral the moral system or the system that's thinking about who to possibly exploit and target for mm-hmm. condemnation, might you see different different strengths of condemnation of particular acts, different groups condemning particular acts sooner than other groups might, you right. know? And so, I mean, listen, this is a very touchy subject. And right. so it's people don't necessarily like thinking about these ideas, but the idea, so what's, a, what's right and what's appropriate? And as a scientist, I think it's important to ask the questions, no matter the hot water it might land land Mm -hmm. you in. But as a scientist, I'm interested in, okay, so if women tend to get disgusted by 
a man touching their back, which many would, especially if they don't find that man sexually attractive. And women are, you know, it's like a light switch. Either you're, you know, attractive or you're not. You know, it's it's typically, you know. Well, fine, Deborah. Someone's not getting a hug after this podcast. <laughs> All right. Jeez. I was going to put myself out there, but. <laughs> so if, but if women are finding particular acts more disgusting than, let's say, men would, because men are the ones typically doing these things. So if they're doing them, then they obviously don't necessarily find them disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, these things are more objectionable to women mm-hmm. and more wrong. And and so those sensitivities are coming to light now that women have the voice to be able to and the leverage in order to be able to voice that particular viewpoint. And so there's a lot of good that's being done in the sense of people are now, you know, men and women are now being woken up to the idea that, A, women have a voice. I mean, we do. And we differ in what we care about and certain things we do not find to be okay. Mm -hmm. But the science has to come in as well to say, you know, Women might have these settings and men have these settings. Both would agree on what's really bad and really wrong. And both would agree on what's really good and really fun. But there's going to be this middle area in this zone of, you know, where there's going to be a lot more disagreement about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. A male might not really understand why, why can't I put my hand here? Like, what? that's not disgusting to me. That's not objectionable to me. Whereas a woman is like, do not touch me. You know, that, that's objectionable to me. And so... It's, it starts to get into a really difficult area in terms of what, you know, how do we proceed? What can you now do and what can't you now do? And, you know, these are these are important questions. Yeah, it seems like almost a trickier one than the race one, which is like a whole, you know, that's a whole bag of uh, trouble uh, too. But at least like, you know, that's like skin pigmentation. Whereas male, male and female, these are like, these are some pretty different mechanisms at play here and, and different motivations at play here and it's it's going to take uh, a little more um time to I, I think create that empathy and mindfulness and understanding and getting people to see i don't i'm i'm Rooting for a lady, I'm way pro women. I I would never pretend to know what it's like to be a woman. I mean, I can't. You don't know what it's like to be a guy. You could take some wild guesses at it. I have no idea what it's like to be <laughs> to be a, a, a woman. And, and sex, there's food, there's going sex, to, <laughs> food. It's not bad. That's pretty good. <laughs> but my consciousness tells me a much more fanciful okay. story of of what's actually happening there. But but these are also. Um, this is uh, the environment's always changing, especially now. Uh, seems faster than other uh, ever maybe humans have always felt that way but it seems like with the internet and the the way that that yes. our uh, humans have gained the ability to uh, manipulate our environment in such a quick way um, that the landscape can change so quickly but then also throughout uh, the lifetime of a development of, of a human being yeah. when you're young and optimistic and figuring out your path in life and the world seems full of adventure and opportunity and then you know you get older and you kind of uh, maybe found the things that you like and found your preferences and are settled in on that or or are, are a little scared or uh, you know your immune system's taking hits or or you're you're showing poor health and you're really dialed into like this is exactly what I need and the world is not full of opportunity it's full of threats now this is I have a 
a friend of mine that I had a rather concerning uh, lunch with him. His, his he had a, a family member uh, pass away, a pretty bad death, uh, uh, two three years ago, and it clearly has just had him thinking a lot about morality a lot, and made him very vulnerable. And he is just like a very different person. And now all of those openness, I haven't seen him in a while. And there's a lot of like, everything's a threat. Outsiders are a threat. Mm. These different people are a threat. We're going to be a minority. So there's a lot of like, I couldn't, this is like the last time I knew like a hippie friend of mine that was like in this, and all of a sudden talking about men needing to be men and like wanting to buy a gun and having all of uh, all of this all of a sudden everything's a threat we need to gear up and a lot of aggression talk and this is like he's one of the least aggressive person that's what i liked about him that's why we were friends is because he wasn't the an aggressive uh douchebag like a lot of the people that we went to high school with and uh, to see that change happen really quickly uh, was trouble, and there's all sorts of interesting stuff, ha- like talking about needing to have kids, re- like clearly thinking about morality a lot, and those those drivers really revving up hmm. and firing. But just within an individual, I just had like all of this knowledge from all these podcasts that I do as I'm sitting there across the table, I'm like, oh no, like I think you're a broken machine and need a little bit of help. Um, but but it's this can happen to any. Any one of us. And, and people, I, I love the studies where you put like a, a smoke, bomb, a stink bomb or whatever in a room and people vote more against affirmative action or against gay marriage or. Oh, the dis- yeah. You, you put a fart, yeah, you make fart spray. You, you spray some fart spray fart and then spray. P- potentially people, yes, turn more conservative. But yeah who, who knows maybe maybe the more conservative maybe like i i'm just not a super uh conservative but like my listeners know that i, I can't <laughs> you know i'm not gonna pretend to be completely unbiased um but uh um and and i also recognize that there's like within academia there's a lot of stuff happening now where there's like too much pc talk going on and people feel like they're getting attacked because they can't talk about their science i know even within evolutionary psychology and biology is a big thing happening right now so i i would i would very much love to tell myself that i'm this unbiased character that it is just evaluating no, the truth of everything of course yeah. we are um but but you know there uh, there's it's it's very possible that there's there's people in political parties that I do not belong to that are picking up on things and information more accurately in certain aspects um than I am that's that's quite possible i would certainly love to hope that i'm not going walking around doing all these podcasts week after week and studying and learning everything i can and i'm worse off than than someone watching football for eight hours a day and never learning but um but who knows it it is it is we we don't know what i I mean the human mind regardless of education or anything else is is capable of of picking up on some pretty interesting things and is a really complex organ uh and uh, sometimes I'm like, I don't know who knows if someone's picking up on something that I don't understand well I think that you know you, you talked about personality mm-hmm. and people's different settings mm-hmm. and some really interesting research is showing that even political ideas mm-hmm. and and preferences seem to be very much tied to person specific 
qualities, how formidable you are, your level of resources, and so forth. And so some interesting research showing that even even if you are in favor of redistributing resources uh, versus not seems to be tied a lot to your a lot of person-specific qualities. Mm-hmm. And so there's some interesting research uh, being done by Michael Bang-Peterson. Um, and so that would be someone uh, you might very much enjoy talking to about about these things. Um, yeah. And so, but from, an, from a hunter-gatherer kind of ancestral point of view, the idea that if you were big and you had resources, you know, you might have very different view about redistribution and sharing than if you, you know, were very weak uh, and weren't as capable of defending resources. Now it ends up that you know hunter gatherers they tended to share and uh, they share food quite a bit. But the question still is is you know people feeling that more should be shared versus you know there's always points of agreement. You know yes of course I'm gonna you know tolerate you know you taking my food and some food from my from my hunt. Um, and so it was very common for people to share food with other with others. The question really is, is in terms of preferences and what's said in terms to try and sway people either to take less or to take more. I don't know. I think there's some, yeah. there's a lot of interesting research, I think, to be done as to why we have the, the preferences we do in, in that arena. Um, I'm in a cooperative shared relationship with uh, the club owner tonight where I've made this arrangement to do a show for X amount of money. You know, we're, we're both hoping to share some of the revenue from from the shows but there's still negotiations in there and we both have ideas of what each one of our contributions is is worth and how much value is it in and i i'm sure both of us would prefer to be getting a bit more (laughs) of the resources well the thing is is you use the word to describe your relationship with the owner of, of the club sharing you know cooperative cooperation and sharing and i think that after thinking about disgust and morality and what maybe those coordinated group actions are are there to do Sometimes I would say that you guys are what looks like cooperation is like a mutual, you know, a, a, a mutual where where force and, you know, yeah. the two forces that are meeting each other have finally come to rest. And it looks like it's stable and not 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 pushing against one another in any physically aggressive way. But in fact, you know, if you could get more of a you know of a percentage you would and if he could charge you know yeah it, maybe i'll find someone else some but, other jerk out there willing to give me more money and yeah. screw that guy but the, <laughs> but but you know even but even in relationships uh the idea that we we tend to call them you know cooperative and you know that's right. and loving but it's it, a fun way to it, it makes us feel good to say it does it but way. the question is is if you t- if you just kind of look at it from the other side and you know no i'm not a negative person like this all the time but the idea is if you were to look at it from the other side and Think about it as a, you know, mutually exploitative relationship where I've gotten just about as much from you as I feel that it's cost effective to try and get given who I am and who you are. Um, And so to the extent that I I, I can gain some ground, I will. Um, And you see this all the time. It doesn't register like this. It just registers as, you know, you know, don't ask me to do this for you. You know, I already do enough for you. Or, you know, how come you don't how come you don't bring me any presents or how come you don't cook me any like it comes out in our dialogue as very different ways. But what it is, is is more of a, you know, a very sensitivity to this push and pull of how much am I getting versus are you getting and that dynamic. So a perfectly cooperative 
in scare quotes relationship is also you can also call it perfectly exploitative like i've i've determined the amount that's worth me trying to extract from you and how much i can get you to change your behavior to benefit me more uh and you have also likewise done the same and we've hit this particular medium here and that depends it depends on my leverage your leverage and my concerns about being socially condemned for doing otherwise mm-hmm. in addition to how related you are to me or my, you know other things other other sources of value so it just it's made me really think about you know why we give a rat's ass about anybody, and, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, only to say is of course we do, but understanding the factors that contribute to why we do, um, I think is still it's unsolved still. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I have all sorts of relationships with club owners that I'm like, oh, I love hanging out. With you. These are my friends, and then they don't book me for a couple of years because. Because uh, they've, uh, you know, have other people that are interested in book, and then I start getting in my head. I'm like, oh, screw those! They're bad. <laughs> They're bad people. And then I know also know bad things about them um, that I'm going to spread around throughout the comedy community. So there's all, all sorts of like <laughs> in everyone's in everyone's life, and everyone. That's just yeah. one silly example. There's all of these things uh, happening, and um, we all just want to be loved. Yeah, and and since we're exploiting you, listeners, uh, 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 just a reminder to uh, to get the book <laughs> Objection, uh, and and we're uh, I mean it's a pretty safe exploitation, I'd say I'd say I'm say you're not being exploited for a whole lot of of your resources to get the book Objection, Discussed Morality and the Law. And if for no other reason, you'll learn a lot more about how to exploit no. others. For, <laughs> yes, Deborah, that's what the whole point of these two episodes, the title of these episodes oh, is yeah. how to, uh, how to exploit, exploit yes. people. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I did. So like I mentioned, I only read half of this book uh, is all I had time for. We lined up this podcast uh, without tons of lead time, and I ordered it just as soon as I could. And uh, uh, but all all that being said, in case you've listened to these episodes and you're like, already got it. They covered everything. Know everything from it. No, believe me, this is well worth your time. There's so much. I can't wait to finish it myself, even though I'm done with this podcast and it's no longer as imperative in my life. I'm still going to gain the value from all of the information um, that I have been learning and will continue to learn from it. So make sure and check that out. And Deborah, let's tell ourselves a silly fanciful story of of how we can change the world and prime people to behave in in more cooperative ways and spread love and hope i have my guests each week plug a charity <laughs> of of their choice it might be a silly goof that we're just playing on ourselves maybe i'm just sitting here patting myself on the back have i ever even contributed the listener doesn't know that i might just be uh, wanting to gain some moral superiority by uh, by I'm right now when I Deborah was like in case you're wondering listeners like is he ever gonna wrap that Deborah's been Deborah's been giving me motions to keep on going with this spiel as she uh, as she looks up because she wants to make sure and have the proper website for you so that's why I'm continuing this improvised you're the best. <laughs> yeah so it's uh 
FIRE Foundation. So it's the FIRE Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Awesome. So yeah, go out there, do so. And I mean, worst case... Worst case that it happened is uh, you just got exploited by an organization for a very small amount. There was, you got exploited in worse ways today, just at whatever restaurant you ate at or the grocery store that you went in. I guarantee you. It's a much safer bet to try to get out there and try um, try to do some good and help others that are trying to do this. That's... As far as I can tell, <laughs> that's the best help we have. Might as well try to have some hope and optimism yes. in the world here and there. Am I right, Deborah? Yes. Um, it was was there anything that you needed to leave listener? Any any we didn't uh, like? Did I leave anything untied that we need to put a little bow tie on in the end? Anything that you didn't get to that you need to mention? Do you have other books? No. In my head. In your head, yes. you do. But you can check out, where can people go to find some of your publications? And- so the University of Miami Department of Psychology has a website uh, for Deborah Lieberman. Fantastic. Um, but no, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. I'll talk with you next week. Next week on the program, remember the episode a few weeks ago where we were at the Moat Aquarium in in Sarasota, Florida, talking about algae. Fantastic, fun episode. Well, next week I'm in Key West talking about coral reefs, uh, the problems with coral, and testing new coral, actually uh, creating new mutant forms of coral that can withstand some of the new environmental pressures brought on by global warming uh it's it's a really fantastic interesting and important episode with a researcher there christopher page who's also just a really fun conversationalist as well which always uh helps with the show and so it's a terrific episode i hope you check it out go to patreon.com slash shane moss just started releasing some new content out there most importantly New shows coming up, Minneapolis confirmed October 17th for my new show, Stand Up Science, a mix of stand-up comedy and scientists giving talks, so you can check it out, have some laughs, and learn along the way, and I'm just so excited for this project, and again, working on locking up Chicago, Milwaukee, and Madison as well. That's not 100% on this on this run in October, but it will definitely happen um, in in January, if not uh, coming up in October. So please support the show. If you know anyone in the area, go to shanemoss.com to find more. And remember, you can join me in Jamaica at Myco Meditations in April. If you go and check out my website, it's April, the beginning of April. It's April 6th to the 13th is the next retreat that's open. All the retreats have been filling up very fast, so go and check that out promptly. Today's outro music is provided by Harnessing the Sun. Check out the Jimmy Fro Indie Music Podcast for more great indie music. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorite.